Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today I will talk about the late Jeff Metcalf's book, Backcast, Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. I'll be reading some passages and sharing a few stories of my own about the outdoors. Thanks for listening. Let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast and who produces it. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. For better or worse, it's a one-man operation with me, Brennan Rensink, playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, and everything else. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at BYU, neither of which roles trained me for the current task. But I do have a lot of fun doing this because I'm passionate about better understanding the North American West, the region I have called home for most of my life. In each Writing Westward episode, I have a conversation with writers of the region, academics, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, anyone authoring anything about the West. My goal is that these conversations will spark listeners' curiosity to dig in a bit more themselves and think differently about the peoples, histories, environments, ideas, and identities that make up the North American West or that we ascribe to the region. Please leave reviews or comments on whatever platform you are listening and let me know if we're succeeding. For updates or communication, please follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find all episodes on our website, writingwestward.org, or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or most all major podcast distribution platforms, apps, and services. To learn more about the BYU Red Center, stay tuned, and at the end of the episode, I'll offer some additional information about our projects, programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research, and events. Find the center at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. For more regular updates, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at BYU Red Center. Now, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. This month's episode, unfortunately, will be somewhat different than normal. I was set to talk with Jeff Metcalf, an assistant professor of English at the University of Utah, about his recent book of essays, Backcast, Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters, published by the University of Utah Press in 2018. Metcalf was a celebrated author and playwright, and the recipient of multiple awards. And by all accounts, he had a kind and jovial heart to match his playful wit and deft way with words. When I contacted him quite a few months ago, he was happy and excited to talk, but as we approached the agreed-to time frame to schedule an interview, he informed me he was headed in for another round of cancer treatment. He agreed to connect afterwards, uh, and he hoped that he would recover strength quickly. The week after, however, he got in touch and apologized. He wrote, This particular protocol I'm on has been brutal. I need everything in my arsenal to even make it out of bed every morning and sometimes that's not enough. Jeff suggested an alternate author, Max Werner, whose 2009 book Black River Dreams he felt would touch on many similar topics as his backcast. I told him uh, I would be happy to do so. I also expressed that I'd be happy to wait, even for months on end if needed, if he wanted to speak sometime later in the year, or we could simply move on. I didn't hear back. A week or two later, KVR's great Radio West program posted an old rerun episode with Jeff about his book, Requiem for Living, as memoriam. It was as I feared. Jeff had passed on. I've wrestled with what to do over the past month or so about this planned podcast, but I've settled on the present plan. I'd like to introduce you to Metcalf and 
then read some passages from Batcast that really touched me. For as you will see, this collection of essays is much more than fishtails. The subtitled Fly Fishing may provide the narrative framework, but the subtitled Other Such Matters that Metcalf weaves through his fishtails are really what sticks with you. Metcalf was a lover of Western waters, and the intimacy of his relationship to Western waters, fish, and landscapes will resonate with anyone who lives in the region or who has recreated here in our mountains and deserts. So I'd like to share a few of the questions that I'd planned to ask Jeff, then read some passages from Batcast as answers of sorts, and if you'll indulge me, share a few experiences of my own in the outdoors that Jeff's writings immediately and vividly brought to my memory. First, and now more poignant than I had anticipated, I'd planned to welcome Jeff to the podcast by congratulating him on writing a book, uh, the first book for this podcast, that made me cry within the first five minutes of picking it up. His first essay, entitled Bone Deep, talks about a, uh, his struggle with prostate cancer and a counseling therapy retreat program that he volunteered for. This is a program that paired male cancer survivors with fly fishing guides. Upon arrival, he realized that they had accidentally booked him as a participant. Although he was a cancer survivor, he thought that he was coming to be one of the fly fishing hosts. Although initially dismayed because he was there to provide service, not to receive, the three-day retreat impacted him profoundly. He writes the following uh, in the closing of Bone Deep. The fly fishing was brilliant. During the three-day retreat, all 17 men caught fish. And in those sweet moments, the length of time between the cast and the rise of a plump trout to the fly, we were all free of our cancer. I entered into that weekend with the belief that I would be a buddy to men who had cancer and had never fly fished before. Had that been the case, I would have left the retreat with a feeling that I had given something of myself to men who were in need. Instead, it was I who was the recipient of their generosity and brotherhood. It was I who was in the great need. Six of the men I fished with that fall have passed away since I began writing this collection of essays. Three or four others have had their cancers return, including myself. Whenever I am on the river, I carry these men with me. And when I catch a plump trout, I name it for one of my brothers and release it back into the wild, where it disappears into the sacred and holy. For Jeff, it was fly fishing. For me, it has been hiking and trail running in the mountains that provides these intimate experiences with nature, where our interactions with the outdoors, be it uh, wild or managed nature, uh, does something to us. When alone, it connects us to something, perhaps as he wrote, sacred and holy. I don't personally know if Jeff was a religious man. But spiritual awakenings and epiphanies hide under the surface of a lot of his stories. I am, and for me, outside places have often provided some of the most profound connections I've had with the divine. However, as he shared in this story, when we are with others outdoors, not alone, that experience can be equally powerful, be it fly fishing or trail running or some other outdoor activity. There's something in the action and place that can stitch participants' hearts together in shared experiences. Ineffable, but no less real and clear. So it was with Jeff and the Cancer Survivor Retreat. 
I hope those from that group still with us might name a trout or two in Jeff's honor. I was curious to ask Jeff about how he views Western landscapes as a fly fisher. In an essay, A Near Perfect Day, he observed the following. In rare moments on the river, time floats and slows to an immeasurable rhythm. The landscape of mountains and rounded hills dissolves into the river. It is all one can see, the narrow window of trout and water. Such is the hypnotic power of trout. I really loved his imagery, and I wanted to ask him if this happens as he drives around the West. Did this, quote, landscape of mountains and rounded hills really dissolve from his sight? When I drive around the West, I'm often casting my eyes upward, searching for ridgelines and canyons, potential routes for future hiking or trail running adventures. For Jeff, did that topography blur as he instead focused on the tiny ribbons of water he knew must lie between those ridgelines, hidden drainages where trout were waiting for him? I do think that our interest and background, whatever it is that we bring to Western landscapes, does radically alter the way we see and read the lands around us. I spoke briefly with the, about this uh, with Diné poet Taysiat City uh, in one of the first episodes of the podcast, asking her about how she viewed her Diné Ta Navajo homelands and how she views them differently than perhaps I do driving through the same lands. Recently, I've gone on a couple trail runs with one of BYU's plant and wildlife science professors, Sam St. Clair. He researches ecosystems, aspen trees, how landscapes recover from fire, the impact of animals on those uh, recoveries and so forth. And it was an eye-opening experience, uh, excuse the pun, when on one of these outings, we ran a loop that I had done multiple times before uh, then and many times since. Up Battle Creek Canyon, then north on the Great Western Trail, across some of my favorite meadows anywhere in the Wasatch Mountains, and then down Grove Creek Canyon. It's a wonderful loop. But as I was running with Sam, and I asked him questions about the topography, why certain trees grew in some places and not others, it became apparent to me how his eyes saw a completely different landscape. He saw decades and centuries of relationships between fire, aspens, gamble oak, all these things playing out across the hillsides, where I only saw the present beautiful views. His eyes, trained by science, asked questions and revealed truths about the landscape's past and present that were invisible to me. Perhaps this is why the allure of outdoor experience is so strong across so many varied populations. No matter our background, all of us bring things to Western landscapes that cause us to read and see them differently and connect to them differently. And for many of us, including Jeff, become obsessed with and dependent for those intimate experiences that we suddenly cannot live without. In the essay, The Last Steelhead, Jeff wrote the following. I am drawn to waters, rivers, Western rivers, and it is to the river I disappear when my life becomes complicated and confused. There have been many times when this has happened, and always, always, the river has offered salvation. For Jeff, it was more than just being hooked. Fly fishing on western waters was more than an addiction or an obsession. It did something to him, and it did something for him. In his words, it offered him something. Salvation. Salvation from what? Many things from the humdrum 
of daily life, from concerns, from worry. It offers us so much. Even before hearing the news of Jeff's passing, I knew that I wanted to talk with him about life and death, about mortality. As I mentioned, he opens his book with the story of a cancer survivor retreat. And Batcast's essays are filled with anecdotes and musings on how our lives are precarious and precious. But not a moment to be wasted. Not an afternoon to be wasted. If there's a stretch of water nearby to be teased for hungry trout, why attend another department meeting, as he jokes about in one essay, when he could sneak out and fish, something that he apparently did regularly, much to his cherished chagrin. For Jeff, I'm not sure what came first. Was it fly fishing, informing his understanding of his mortality? Or was it Jeff's bouts with cancer, informing his experiences with fly fishing? Maybe it was some of both. In the essay, Split Second, he writes about driving back to Salt Lake after another excellent fishing expedition and a brush with death he had on the road. He writes, We pulled out of Shoshone, headed south on a two-lane highway, when two large deer bounded across the road directly in front of us. They came so close and fast, fully stretched out in such blinding speed that I had only a fraction of a second to make a wheel correction to avoid hitting them. It was instinctual, without thought, and I split the space between the deer, avoiding what we later realized would have been a horrendous accident. The highway beveled down a steep incline, and we most certainly would have plummeted end over end in my Subaru Forester, or worse still, run head on into oncoming traffic, a bloody mix of deer and metal. When my head cleared and I settled down, I thought of it, of the capriciousness of life, of how one thing might lead to the next or not, of how all things hang precariously on reflex and circumstance. I thought of how a second sooner or later might have altered our lives and the promise of life forever. It framed for me a sense of happenstance and chance. There are no guarantees in any of this, and what we believe we have in front of us cannot be played out with any certainty. Life was reduced to the simplest equation, and I could live with this. Whatever time I would be granted, I would enjoy as I always had, in the company of family and friends, all of whom offered me love and light and laughter in the embrace of life. For Jeff, it seemed, it was insufficient to simply live life. I like how he terms it the embrace of life. Perhaps fully embracing life means embracing and accepting the risks that allow us to live fully. In the aforementioned essay, In Your Perfect Day, he relates a trip down south to the Price River, where the fishing was unbelievably good. But during the course of the day, he fell and he cracked his head open, stumbled around bloody and alone for probably longer than was safe, and in the end was diagnosed with a concussion. In retrospect, he mused on how he embraced life, its thrills and risks. He wrote, One might suspect a calamity like this would not be wasted on me. Perhaps instead of listening to the voice that encourages me to try the improbable, wade in risky waters, fish beyond my ability, and place myself in the path of danger, I could consider the experience on the Price River as a prophecy of things to come if I did not mend my ways. But how can one fly fish partially, be of two worlds, the world of caution and the world of the wild? It is not possible for me. I must meet the water on my own terms. 
I'm not entirely sure what to make of this, but I do like this phrase uh, of being in the world of caution and the world of the wild. And any of us who venture out into the outdoors uh, have to balance this somehow. In recent years, I've had a couple acquaintances uh, die um, while doing some of the same trail running and mountain exploits that bring me a lot of joy. And that's caused me to pause. I do enjoy pushing myself, but I'm somewhat risk-averse, unwilling to scramble uh, a ridgeline where a single slip or accident would mean certain death. A broken leg, an arduous hobble, and crawl back to a trailhead? Maybe I can handle that. But certain death? No. A few years back, when I was first getting into trail running, I had to drive down to Arizona for a conference. We have family down there, so I do this drive quite often, but this was a rare occurrence of driving it solo. So I decided to take the opportunity to put in a run somewhere along the way, somewhere in that canyon country that I often drove by, wondering what there was to find beyond that strip of asphalt on Highway 89 or elsewhere. I settled on an obscure canyon off the 89A that apparently led all the way down to the Colorado River. It was called Soap Creek Canyon. I left at 3.30 a.m. and arrived at the trailhead sometime in the late morning. It was a nondescript patch of dirt beyond a cattle fence that you had to close behind you. There were no other cars in sight. I bounded down the canyon and drainage, slowing regularly to locate cairns, picking away down rock falls and slick rock, and in even one section uh, shimmy down a rope that had been affixed. It was about five and a half miles down to the river. And the view there of the Colorado was worth every ache in my legs. The deep green-blue of the Colorado River was set dramatically against the canyon's bold yellows and oranges and stark whites. I sat there for a while, took my shoes off, cooled my feet in the water, ate a granola bar or something. I can't quite recall. On the way down, I had crossed paths with two backpackers who were on their way up the canyon, but otherwise I hadn't seen a soul. And after I relaced my shoes and started running back the first few, the first mile back up Soap Creek Canyon's bottom wash, a few things hit me. First, I was very, very alone. I had about five miles and about 2,500 feet of vertical climbing between me and my car. It was not runnable terrain, uh, and it featured a fair amount of rock scrambling. Nothing too dangerous, but not a walk in the park. The second thing that hit me was a loud pop. I violently rolled one of my ankles. This put the miles and climbing ahead in a very different light. It seemed much more ominous. Then I rolled it again. I was scared. Next, both of my calf muscles violently cramped and seized. I was very new to running at this point, and 11 miles for me was a long adventure. Also, no one had taught me about electrolytes. I later realized that my muscles were probably just in desperate need of salt, all that salt that I'd been sweating out in the gallons uh, throughout the morning. If it had been a five-mile walk with some cramped calf muscles, I wouldn't have been worried. But as I mentioned, I had a lot of rock scrambling ahead. And every time I placed my foot on a foothold to lift my body up the rock face, the twitch of those calf muscles threatened to fully seize uh, and potentially send me falling to even greater injury. In the end, I made it back to my car, but it was really the first time that I felt in true danger while out on the trail. I probably could have dragged myself to the car at 
if things had gotten worse. But would it have turned into one of those multi-day hellacious tales that gets turned into a Discovery Channel, I shouldn't be alive episode? I'm not sure. In other words, I still haven't quite settled on this. How to live a life that is in the world of caution and in the world of the wild, as Jeff put it. One way or another, the wild continues to pull me towards the edge of that balance. But I should note for my parents and my wife that uh, I stay mostly on the safe side of that balance. I wonder what it is about some of these landscapes and environments, vistas, plants, or wildlife, um, that we find an innumerable diversity around the American West that seems to connect with so many of us so profoundly. I'm from Northwest Washington, and my wife is from Desert, Arizona, and we often joke how our hometowns really couldn't have been more different. But in their deserts and mountains and forests uh, that surround these towns, um, we've often commented on the beauty we find. There are different kinds of beautiful, she often says. But whether in the North Cascades or the Sonoran Desert, the Wasatch Mountains, or the Red Rock Deserts of my current home here in Utah, um, we don't have to look very far in the American West to find a landscape that is not only beautiful, but inspiring in ways that, that seems to somehow touch us deeply. And despite the enormity of many of these Western vistas that often seem to overwhelm us as we struggle to awkwardly frame landscape photos on our iPhones, pivoting around to try to catch it all in a single frame. So also many of the fly fishing experience that Jeff shares in Batcast, and some of the most memorable ones, were not in the enormity of the Western landscape, but in very small moments, singular moments, that may have certainly unfolded in a breathtaking setting, but for which that background melted away in the intensity of a more narrowly focused experience. Let me share an experience of my own, and then I'll read one of Jeff's essays actually in its entirety. as kind of paired examples of this dynamic, of the power of the small, singular, intimate experience that we find when we place ourselves in specific Western spaces, mountains for me, uh, or on the waters for Jeff, and how these the, the smallness of the moment and the largeness of the landscape work together to really stick with us. It was a few years ago, on a hot June afternoon, I threw on my running gear and drove up American Fork Canyon to run the Timpaniki Trail approach to the Mount Timpanogos Summit. It's one of the most popular hiking trails in Utah, but this was pretty early in the season, and it was late in the afternoon that day, so there weren't a lot of people out. It was in the 90s when I started, and the heat evaporating from the ample runoff and streams made for heavy, humid air along the lower portions of the trail. But it cooled quickly as I climbed. On my way up, I found a number of snowfields still intact, which required some careful navigating, but weren't too dangerous. I encountered quite a few mountain goats as I worked my way up the switchbacks, from the Timpanogos Basin up to a saddle that gives you views down at Utah Valley. This included one particularly grumpy male goat who stared me down and refused to get off the trail. One of his two horns was either broken or bent, but it was, it was pointing downwards, and there was f fresh blood dripping down his face from the base of the horn, potentially from having butted heads with another goat, I'm not sure, but I gave him wide berth and scrambled off trail in the scree to try to get around him. When I reached the summit of Mount Tipinogus, which stands at 11,752 feet, I was alone. I had it to myself. I took a few pictures and caught my breath, and it was then that I realized that the last people I had seen were a couple miles down 
below the Timpanogos Basin, and already heading downhill. This meant that I was truly alone on the summit. Later in the summer, night hikers are numerous, but I suspected that this early in June, there was likely no one behind me making their way up in what would be the dark. It was an exhilarating and humbling moment to stand there, overlooking the populated valley that I call home to the west, but alone, on a massive mountain, with seven miles and over 4,000 feet of vertical elevation, and a forested mountain filled with often ill-tempered moose and potentially bears or mountain lions, lying between me and my car. The sun was setting, and the solitude of that moment on the summit paralyzed me. I was simultaneously entranced with the beauty, with the thrill of having the mountain to myself, but also terrified. I had a headlamp with me. I had come prepared because I knew it might get dark before I got to the car. But as I quickly bounded down the mountain to get as much trail behind me uh, before uh, I was plunged into darkness, I started to feel a little scared and anxious. And then came the small, singular moment that I wanted to, to mention. Partway down the summit ridge, there's a notch in the rock uh, of a certain part of the trail that the trail um, squeezes through at the top of a section that some people call the corkscrew. Um, it's a notch maybe about uh, four feet, five feet high. And as I approached it, the setting sun was blazing through, blinding light. I had to shield my eyes, and it stopped me in my tracks. But for a s moment, a split second, the anxiety of getting down the mountain while I still had daylight dissolved. And I was overcome with a feeling of peace and stillness that I cannot quite describe. It may be the most intense connection I have ever felt with the divine. Even though it lasted for but a moment and conveyed nothing more to me than that I was seen and that this ineffable beauty of the moment was just for me, I've never forgotten the feeling. I paused, I wiped some tears from my eyes, maybe from the blinding sun, maybe from the emotion, I'm not sure, and then took off to get back to my car as quickly as I could. It was the shortest of moments, but it's been emblazoned on my soul. These momentary glimpses of my minute place within something so much grander than myself are what keep pulling me back to the trails, even through the sweat and panting, cursing of sore legs, and rejoicing. I'd like to read Jeff's essay, Death Song, in its entirety, to illustrate a similar, small and singular moment that seemed to reveal something much grander to Jeff. For the last several years, I have the, had the luxury of spending a couple weeks in June at a friend's ranch in Stanley, Idaho. During the first week, my entire family joins me and we eat, drink, play horseshoes, catch up on each other's lives, visit with old friends, hang out at Redfish Lake, and bathe in the exquisite light of the Sawtooth Mountains. And we always fly fish together, casting floating hot dogs, hatchery fish that are stocked in many of the dredge ponds up Yankee Fork. It is easy fishing, and although it is not necessarily my preference in fly fishing, it is a treat to watch my son and my son-in-law ironing out the kinks in their casting and land fish. With each fish landed and released, a sort of calm takes over them, and they seem at home. The ponds are gorgeous, deep blue-green, in part, I suspect, from the irreparable damage of relentless dredge mining during the gold mining boom of the mid-1800s. 
At the top of Yankee Fork, a mammoth gold mining dredges landlocked and remains as a historic reminder of what we've done to the landscape. It is a dinosaur that clawed its ways up the canyon and spit out giant boulders for a five-mile stretch, leaving the land scarred and sterile. It is a hideous aid memoir to our recklessness, disregard of the natural world. It is a body scar that offers us a glimpse of the past and serves as a warning to the future. When my family leaves Stanley, I am left alone for a week to work on my writing. The first day, the silence and absence of my family is deafening. I get up at first light and I try to sort things to make sense of my life in the way I feel most honest. I write. I can't shake it and the process speaks to me, calls me out and makes me examine myself in a way that I can't do in the other world. I'm carrying some heavy weight these days. At the end of this self-imposed ritual, I return home to begin a course of radiation targeted at a tumor on my liver. It is the fourth appearance of cancer in my body in nine years, and I am beat up mentally and physically. Fly fishing and wild water is an important element in this battle against a savage and uncompromising disease, and it connects me to the real in a most absolute manner. I would be crippled without rivers and trout. Earlier in the week, I'd noticed the appearance of salmon flies, thick and blanketed on the Salmon River. Fish were reckless in their feeding, and since I was locked into an essay that was not cooperating, I grabbed my fly rod and made my way to the river. There was a small spot I liked to fish, and I knew it held some good-sized cutthroat trout. Perhaps I could entice a trout or two onto a salmon fly. Before entering the water, I studied the river's narrative. Much is revealed to a fly fisherman in the first moments on any stretch of familiar or unfamiliar water. Fluctuation in the river changes any body of water. That which might have been familiar a year before can be completely transformed a year later. Taking time to regard the water properly, looking for tongues and ripples, rings and slurps, makes one part of the aesthetic. Water is where I need it to be. It might have been a bit late in the day for the salmon fly hatch, but it didn't matter. Perhaps the trout had gorged themselves earlier and were off the fly. I tied on a salmon fly with a zebra midge as a dropper and began working up river on the run I'd selected. I was meticulous about the presentation of the fly and played close attention to the slightest drag in the fly. When it began to lose buoyancy, I withdrew it from the water and dusted it with silicone floatant. Rather haphazardly, trying to get the tapered leader and butt end of the sections of the fly line clean of the smallest guide, I made a short cast into water where no trout would ever hold. On perhaps my third or fourth cast, the water exploded. It startled me completely, and that seldom happens. It was a fat cutthroat and cartwheeled in a giant arc trying to unbutton the zebra midge. Instinctively, it headed for deep water to use the current against the fly. I pursued the cutthroat, tightening the drag on my reel and trying to stay upriver in the water at the same time. I clearly had little control of the matter, and it pleased me to no end. When I started to get some line on my reel, and I felt the cutthroat slowing, it made one last hard run and headed for a large boulder mid-river. I had to turn the cutthroat, or I would lose him if he wrapped around the sharp, angular rock. My six-times tibbet would snap. Suddenly, the ripping stopped, but my rod was still bent to the river. I knew the fish was still on the fly, and it had managed to wrap itself around the boulder, or found some configuration that would allow it some respite from the danger of being caught. I dipped my rod down to the water, 
letting off tension on the fly. This technique had often worked before. The trout feeling off the hook would often bolt from grassy banks and make another run. In a certain slant of light on the water, I caught a glimpse of the cutthroat, and it was a fat and healthy looking fish. It was clearly wrapped around the boulder, and it was equally apparent that I would not be able to dislodge the cutthroat from its refuge. I quickly snapped my tippet off, leaving the cutthroat to the moment. When I did so, the fish did not blast off into the deeps as I expected, but instead stayed anchored to the rock. Somehow, the cutthroat, in its mad effort to escape, had cinched itself tightly onto the rock. In vain, it slashed futility against the current. I tried to find a way to get to the rock and see break off the cutthroat, but the water was too deep and dangerous for me to wade. If it didn't break off soon, this marvelous, healthy, powerful cutthroat would drown. Slowly, the cutthroat began to lose strength. It was my obligation to remain in the water and see this to the end, to offer a fish song and an apology for how the day would end. I suspect it was a surprise to both of us. For some reason, I thought of two stanzas from a Rothko poem. The title escaped me, and I couldn't put the poem in any sort of context. I wondered, perhaps, if the lines had surfaced at just the moment they needed to be summoned. I spoke the words to the cutthroat. Such owly pleasures, fish come first, sweet bird. Skins the least of me, kiss this. Is the eternal near, fondling? I hear the sounds of hands. Can the bones breathe? This grave has an ear. It's still enough for the knock of a worm. I feel more than a fish. Ghost, come closer. The river instructs and speaks to me in a tongue of gurgling water and mystery. There are parallels to my own life. I know this clearly. We are all born of water and what happens to us is uncertain. Let it remain so. I am prepared. I never met Jeff Metcalf, but I'm happy to know that he had these small, singular moments on a beautiful river that brought him peace and joy and allowed him to feel that wherever his life was leading him, he was prepared. I myself am not much of a fly fisher. I try to cast a few wet flies at a cabin in my in-laws family on the Henry's Fork of the Snake River whenever we visit, but I don't catch much. But even in those few experiences of my own, I can understand the allure of western waters and trout um, that Jeff wrote about so eloquently. As we've explored in so many ways through the past two years of this podcast, the west can mean a lot of different things. And it can be fruitfully explored and examined in myriad ways, disciplines, topics, and so forth. But for me, and perhaps for Jeff, the core of the West, or the facet that seems to speak to us most strongly, are its natural places, wilderness, both wild and managed, rivers, mountains, deserts. It's the Western lands that speak to us most. I hope that listeners can take a moment to go outside, wherever you live, be it in the American West or anywhere else in the world, but to step outside and see what the land, what the natural world around you uh, has to say. 
It seems that for Jeff Metcalf, that world spoke to him strongly and clearly and constantly, and it drew him to Western waters. It drew him to trout. For me, it draws me to the foothills and mountains, to trails, to places where I can be alone with my thoughts, to places where I can have experiences that connect me to something bigger than myself. I hope this episode hasn't been too unconventional. I've definitely shared more than I usually do of myself, and I hope you'll forgive me that indulgence. But I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Jeff's book, Backcast, or perhaps one of his earlier works, uh, like A Requiem for Living. Um, He has a beautiful voice, and I think it will touch you as it did me. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave a review on whatever app or platform you're using, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and put that link in the episode description if you didn't catch it. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critiques my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. You can find out more on my website, bwrensink.org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. That's B-R-E-N-D-E-N-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K. One last plug, if you live in the Intermountain West, check out the Red Center's digital public history project, Intermountain Histories, by visiting intermountainhistories.org, or by downloading the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and mobile app, you can read carefully curated about them, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Well, until next month, be well, be curious, be kind.